You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. Today, we are continuing our discussion with Marshall Culpepper, talking about the emerging needs of space verticals. What about some of the emerging areas? Keegan had touched on sort of traffic control in space, which is we've got people, you know, always ask about, isn't there a, you know, a debris issue in space? And, and are there too many satellites? And software is going to be, you know, very helpful keeping those satellites from, you know, staying in their correct orbit or when one has an issue staying out of staying out of the way. But can you touch upon maybe some, maybe a little bit more on some of the emerging areas, you know, now that we're talking about, you know, debris tracking and maybe some of the other in-space activities that you see sort of on the on the horizon? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you had a really key one, actually. I mean, you know, this is sometimes called space situational awareness uh, or debris, debris tracking or, you know, con- conjunction management, whatever you want to call it. There are, I think, probably for good reason, it hasn't been really recorded as a part of the economy just yet because it's a relatively new thing, especially especially commercially. Even though the government has provided that service, it, people can't see it. It's sort of like it's it's benign, but when when there is an issue, we all hear about it. That's exactly right. I mean, you know, there were pub, there were very public headlines when I forget the company had to move out of the way of that SpaceX satellite. That was a big deal, and it, that is like sort of just a macrocosm. There's so many different events like that that you never hear about just because the companies are don't want to talk about it publicly, you know. But yeah, I mean, just to your point, one of my favorite companies in the space industry right now is a company called Leo Labs. They are building these, you know, phase array antenna radars, basically all over the world. And these these radars are very sophisticated and have high precision in terms of what they can what what they can see and what they can resolve uh, down to a down to a resolution that even like some of the military stuff hasn't been able to get yet. And what they're doing instead of like making that a you know a government uh, service, although I'm sure they want government customers, they're really focusing on you know the the mitigation of potential conjunctions with the space debris that they're mapping with actual satellite companies. So they, I would say, in the truest sense, they're a space tech company because they their customers are in space uh, and they're literally tracking stuff with their radars from Earth. But you know, the, everything they do is space oriented. So uh, that's a really cool company, and I think that we're going to see more stuff like that. In fact, it's interesting, actually, their play is pretty cool because of their sensors, but ultimately their their product is like an API and like a, a data layer, uh, which is all pure software. And so I do think that there are going to be a lot more offerings like what Leo Labs is doing, trying to bootstrap off of like ComSpec data and potentially Leo Labs own API even eventually. And that's just one segment. In terms of like other new things that are coming up, like I see probably a lot of need, uh, honestly, in the near future for more and more onboard processing. And so as as we put more and more spacecraft up and we're trying to like basically get the most out of them that we can, there's a fundamental limit in terms of our data bandwidth back mm-hmm. to Earth that we can't, we can't overcome because it's physics. And essentially at some point it will be more advantageous to process data next to the sensor because you get a better you get a better latency or data rate out of the raw connection to the sensor than you do over the ground ground to space link. And when that starts happening, what you'll start seeing is a, a bigger push to virtualize 
compute, especially for for this processing to spacecraft directly and not on the ground. And so that is a there's you've heard this term probably, especially in the last year or two of a software defined satellite. And a few there's a few different meanings for this term, but the idea that you would literally take a data or analytics algorithm that's running on the ground and be able to literally just like change it to run on your spacecraft instead and then get much more throughput from your sensor is a pretty interesting value proposition when you think about the kind of volume of data you could do uh, once you unlock that. And Marshall, I'd say that this is not something that uh, the industry thinks they're going to need at some point in the future. I think they need it now. Yeah, I agree. I've been in the last three conferences I've been to, I've seen no less than, than four companies pitch this exact same solution, some variation on onboard data analytics or improved package handling, all trying to solve the same problem. And now that we're looking at uh, the constellation sizes are just going to get ridiculous. If you do not include SpaceX at all, I think the FAA had it something like 8,000 new satellites being launched inside of the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. And SpaceX just announced this last week. So Starlink was already a ridiculously huge project to begin with, with 12,000 satellites. 12,600, I think, was the official tally. They just announced the other day their new goal, long-term anyway, is 42,000 satellites. <laughs> so for those listeners who are not aware, the total number of satellites ever launched from 1958, uh, 1957 to today was a little over 8,000 satellites. So we're talking almost yeah. six times as many of these damn things flying in orbit yeah. inside of the next 10 years if SpaceX gets their way. Yeah, I, I mean... You know, it, on on some level, it almost feels like Doctor Evil. Like it, it feels like it feels like so so absurd. It can't be true. But on another level, yeah, like like, like the, the scene where he where he has to start you know pumping up the numbers a little bit in his head and like yeah, we will launch one and and not to uh, I, you know not to denigrate SpaceX at all. I, I actually I think the flip side of this coin is that they probably are like the only ones that could actually do that in a like short term, short period of time. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I absolutely like, I'm like, let's, yeah, let's be clear about that. We're not taking, we're not trying to take the piss yeah. on SpaceX here. We are not trying yeah. to take them down a peg. It's just, it is a, it really just gives you a sense though of one company is going to attempt this and they're not going to be the last by any means. Yeah, the and and this is all uh, I can't quite remember. I think most of these birds are going to be flying around in Leo, maybe Mio. This is before we start see- seeing new higher orbits being taken advantage of. I mean, it's going to get pretty crowded up there <laughs> over the next few few decades. And the I read something that SpaceX intends to maybe have some of those satellites operational next year in 2020. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a space news article about and uh, hell, uh, you you could argue Starlink is technically live right now. Space uh, Elon apparently, and anyone who knows anything about software knows that this is both impressive but not quite what he's you know advertising it is. Uh, he sent a tweet running through the Starlink network as it is right now, which I think is like a total of oh what do they got about 120 satellites up there right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how many they've actually launched. I know, I know it's a lot. Yeah, they're trying to hit. Uh, they're trying to hit 20 launches uh, in 2020. So that'll shake out to being around Jesus, 1,200 satellites in a given year, give or take. Yeah, it's a lot. That'll that'll double the number of active satellites in like yeah. one year. That's almost like that's insane. <laughs> Just a hair under. Yeah. Right. Right. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, we we all kind of knew this was what was going to happen when uh, that launch from India went up, and they put up something like 150 birds in one in one flight, just one mega constellation yep. in one go. Yeah, that was uh, that was actually our our really good partner. ISIS is is the company that integrated all 100. It was 101, yeah. I think. 
101 of those satellites onto that Indian rocket. It was a really cool story too. They they talked about how they had this uh, giant table and it was as high as you could get see to the ceiling. They had CubeSat deployers uh, just stacked. Oh yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. And it's, it, you know, that, that story was, uh, I was blown away with it just because this, the moment that happened was the moment for me that we kind of entered a new phase in the nano satellite uh, market. And <laughs> like we were talking about earlier, most people are just really, you know, digging onto the whole idea of, you know, the continued evolution of India's own launch market. And launch got, got kind of front and center, and uh, the satellite uh, side of it really was just left for guys like us to kind of obsess over. So it, it yeah. really just kind of reiterates this problem of people kind of get a little tunnel vision on the launch market as being, you know, the most striking vertical in the space industry. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a big problem or has historically been a big problem for the industry. And I, I don't want to underplay its importance. It is very important. I think companies like Rocket Lab are doing incredible things to increase access. But yeah, I think overall, it's I think it's probably seen a little overly as a sort of pole position in the market where the reality is that most of the money is being spilled elsewhere. In fact, the most comical thing to me about the, the satellite industry traditionally, how it's reported is that I think something like a hundred and eighty or two hundred billion of the total market is literally just like satellite TV and like co- consumer receivers, <laughs> like like, and you know, there's a lot of legacy there, and that is going to be disrupted in a pretty big way as more and more people move off of satellite TV onto the internet. Well, those two things may not be uh, mutually exclusive necessarily. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because there's satellite internet too. If my, if if SpaceX gets their way with Starlink, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, we uh, okay. We're getting a, a little back. We we kind of backpedal a little bit there on the verticals we were talking about, but let's kind of get a little bit deeper into sort of the emerging verticals. And if you asked anyone who is an enthusiast, these were all, you know, a year and a half down the road from wherever we stood a lot of the time. And I'm talking about, of course, microgravity research, anything that's being done in human space fl- flight, of course. But the big one being uh, in-space services and a lot of these more exotic verticals that uh, have really been uh, <laughs> that have really been dependent on launch. And so, you know, there, there's a good reason launch is so important to, to the space industry. Again, oh, yeah. we are not trying to downplay its importance. We're just trying to play up everything that comes after that. I'm sure in the 15th century, there was someone who was probably com- there were probably a bunch of guys walking around complaining about how everyone one is always focusing on the shipbuilding industry and not all the stuff that is actually being sent uh, back and forth to the Indian Ocean Trade Network or to the Americas. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so, yeah, so you wanted to talk about, let's see, microgravity research was the... Let's really get into in-space services because that's kind of the big word that uh, is floating around in this industry right now. And it's something that more and more members of the general public are starting to pick up on. But it's never quite what people seem to think it is. So, Marshall, do you want, want to kind of talk a little bit, a bit about in-space services for a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's it, it's a pretty broad category. There's a lot of things you can put under this bucket. But I think the most immediate and obvious things you can talk about are things like doing repair on orbit. So, you know, think when we had the Hubble Space Telescope in the 90s after it was launched, we had to send another spacecraft with humans aboard to go fix it. And that is like a pretty inefficient way to like fix things that need to be fixed in orbit. And what if you could have robotic spacecraft that, for example, you know, helped change the attitude of a broken, 
you know, broken attitude control system or helped ar- arrange or like sort of inspect if things are going wrong and it's hard to tell what, what's happening. Those, I think those are really interesting uh, opportunities, mainly because, you know, really right now, the way that spacecraft work, even with software updates and the ability to, you know, change things as you as you go, there's a lot of risk still around just not having a source of truth from an external observability perspective. And just having a really simple use case of sending a spacecraft to another spacecraft to check it out and see what's going on, I think is a really big potential opportunity in the future. And a lot of companies are looking at both the repair and the sort of diagnosis side of that. And then diving in even deeper, the the most sort of obvious way that you can service a spacecraft is to, if it has a fuel tank, to refuel it. Just like our cars, we have to stop every, you know, three or 400 miles to get more gas in the tank. Well, designing a mission around is typically, designing a mission is typically limited in, in a lot of cases by how much fuel you can bring aboard and how what you can do with that fuel. And so if you can break free of that design constraint and then bring more fuel to the spacecraft as it's doing its mission, now suddenly you have the ability to extend the life of the mission, do things you couldn't do before, uh, just in general. And I actually think that there may be one really interesting potential upside to that entire business is that you could actually start solving the active space to be problem a little bit better because then instead of having to account account for fuel, right, you can actually get a bird out of the way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Instead of having to account for fuel in the up upfront cost of the of the mission lifetime and having to reserve fuel just for deorbit, you could literally use a refueling spacecraft to to send a decommissioned spacecraft out into the atmosphere to burn up, for example. There's also the possibility of essentially reviving derelict satellites, of which there are around 5,000 still up there, uh, give or take. Yeah. Being able, to, being able to, you know, make use of, you know, th- those solar panels are still functional. Those antenna dishes are still working. That's most of the, and a lot of those often make up the bulk of the mass of the spacecraft, along with the tanks themselves. I mean, this is the only industry where, you're oper- where we all have to operate on one tank of gas right now. But it gets into some yep. potential thorny legal issues like will somebody let you come take those solar panels and some parties might not be <laughs> keen on you getting even close to their satellite, let alone inspecting it or touching it. Right. Yeah. Who who still owns that decommissioned satellite is a good question. <laughs> well, I would be very surprised if there was not already someone working on a satellite resale platform for old vehicles that have been up there forever. The really fun one is what do you do about governments, about satellites that were launched by governments that don't exist anymore? A lot of those old birds were launched by the Soviets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure that, I mean, it. I think it's an interesting idea for sure, but it, you know, in, the, in all the sort of myriad ways that spacecraft can become decommissioned or fail outright, like it does feel like a somewhat intractable problem to think about a general purpose, like way of reusing these spacecraft. I think maybe the most obvious way you could do it would be like to harvest the physical resources, as you mentioned. So like either like grabbing the steel or like the, you know, the, the solar panels, as you mentioned, like those kind of things like harvesting for parts is maybe one way to look at it. I've seen more than a few pitches that have looked at, that looked at that as a possible option. I mean, it's yeah. uh, the way. Oh, oh yeah. I believe that. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, the only question mark has been, you have to both 
harvest the harvesting solar cells and whatnot is one thing. I've seen a few that have gone so far as to suggest of physically grinding down the metal components of a satellite into a powder base that you could then 3D print new components out of. I think we're, I don't, you know, I work on 3D printing. I've seen some very impressive stuff over the last few years. I I don't doubt that's possible, but I think that's a little early to be part of uh, any viable business plan. Yeah, I I would tend to agree. And I would, I would actually say that the complexity, the engineering complexity of that kind of solution would probably rival, if not be more complex than asteroid mining. Because at least asteroids are like relatively homogenous right you know? <laughs> um and, and even that seems a little far away for for us right now so oh yeah now there was one i'd like to come back to the uh, space refueling side of things because this is something that we've talked about for years and it always seems like a borderline impossible problem that a government would have to be the ones to solve but the private sector seems to be getting closer all the time in fact friend of the show dan faber just had a pitch at TechCrunch this uh, last couple of weeks ago if i recall correctly from when we're recording right now for his new company, OrbitFab. And I believe our intrepid Robert Jacobson actually was there for, during uh, during one of the days of uh, th- of that actual uh, presentation. Weren't you, Robert? Yeah, well, he, he pitched, I saw him pitch twice recently, once online with, tech, with TechCrunch, TechCrunch Disrupt up in San Francisco, and then he also pitched at the Techstars, ex- their first graduating accelerator focused on space, and they were teamed up with Starburst Accelerator, and that was in Los Angeles. And Dan, at that point, Dan had announced, you know, they had, I think they had just closed their round, their seed round. Awesome. And they've actually already, and they've actually already got it. They've taken a tank to International Space Station. They've brought it back to Earth and they did the first ever, now there was only water in it. I'm, I'm trying to think, they, they did the first ever like water refueling, but I know I'm screwing that up somehow because they already get, I mean, they bring up water to the space station, but Dan did something with, that well, not Dan personally, but the astronauts essentially took water from the tank there that they brought on board and then and filled and you know filled it up on, on the space station. Yeah, what uh, OrbitFab has really done, folks, has developed a kind of universal gas cap for spacecraft. So they're able to to essentially solve a lot of the problems of refueling a vehicle in zero g. Because there's no gravity to and uh, and make and there's no gravity and there's often no pressure to be able to move liquid from one vessel to another uh, in microgravity and orbit fab appears to have solved this problem. Now, one of the other things that I thought was uh, really interesting about how orbit fab is approaching this is that they've kind of gotten past the scalability problem with a space depot. So this concept has been proposed on and off by governments and private enterprise pretty much since the space industry started. Uh, And almost always the idea has been, well, we stick a great big fuel tank in space that we probably cannibalize off of another launch vehicle that's going up. So in other words, a piece of a rocket is turned into a gas tank. uh, And then we can, you know, tow spacecraft to that. And rather than doing something that has just the ridiculous amount of upfront cost that something like that would have, OrbitFab has been going in the direction of being able to launch, uh, I think they're 12 unit CubeSats? that are little mini gas tanks and then you can kind of daisy chain those together and just scale up a larger depot with relatively low cost per use so you can meet the needs of a given customer and as your customer base grows you can then expand the size of the platform now it's going to be interesting seeing how rapidly that scale actually occurs what customers they're able to pull in they're playing things fairly close to the chest right now Robert, have they have they announced uh, anything in the way of uh, a first customer just yet? I think they did announce. 
every, pretty much everybody was announcing customers at the the TechStar event. Part I think part of the program is it's heavy on customer development. But mm. I don't remember a specific name being announced. But I do think they have customers, just maybe unannounced. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. Join us next week for our final segment with Marshall Culpepper as we discuss some old war stories from our times in the space industry.